0: Welcome to The Bob Sadek Show, your home for insight and in-depth analysis. Listen live right here or join us at BobSadek.com. That's Z-A-D-E-K, BobSadek.com. The Bob Sadek Show. Ideas, not attitude. Information, not talking points. Hello, everyone. I'm Bob
1: Zadig, host of the country's longest-running libertarian broadcast, nationally streamed at 8 a.m. Pacific Time Sundays on the 860 AM app. My podcast contains more than a decade of historical issues. BobZadig.com offers resource material, book lists, other topical podcasts, and much, much more. We strive to offer in-depth content on social, political, and economic issues that really matter, and always with the ideal guess. Accessible and entertaining. Our rule, ideas, not attitude. In today's show, I'll seek the help of two experts to understand and perhaps solve two surprisingly related but intractable Mm -hmm. nationwide problems which seem to justify solutions and are laden with misunderstanding. The flood of black market fentanyl on the one hand, and our open southern border, in fact all of our borders on the other hand. Is there a connection with the crisis at the border and with street fentanyl seeming to flood cities large and small in our country? Is there a connection Is one the cause of the other? We have to find this out. I'd like to welcome back to the show Dr. Jeffrey Singer. Jeff is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a practicing general surgeon. And also, welcome to the show. Yes, we have two guests today: David Beer. David is Associate Director of Immigration Studies at the at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome to the show this morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now First my first question to uh David in the we're going to try to help our audience unpack these somewhat complex issues and we're going to try to undo a lot of the and the word that we hear in the news all the time m- much of the misinformation about the border in general, the open border, and specifically whether or not the open border contributes to or has any relationship to the fentanyl crisis. So first, uh, David, you have written quite a bit on this. What, in your view, as you observe what commentators are saying and what bloggers are writing, what is the claimed relationship between the crisis at the border, our inability to control our borders, and the flood, if there is a flood, and I guess there is, of black market fentanyl. What is the perception in the public as you see it about the connection between open borders, immigration, and fentanyl?
2: Well, it's pretty clearly stated that illegal immigrants are bringing fentanyl into the United States And uh, selling it to Americans who are dying as a consequence of that. And it's because we don't have enough Border Patrol. It's because we're not enforcing our immigration laws strictly enough that people are dying in the streets or in their homes or wherever uh, as a result of uh, this uh, surge in in uh, production and, and trafficking and fentanyl.
1: So as a result of that perception or misperception, we will sort that out. Uh, do you perceive to be, are you concerned that there might be some animus directed towards towards open borders in general that is to say open borders or welcoming immigrants are in and of itself as a, as a policy contributing to the fentanyl crisis do you is that does that seem to be the perception that our thought leaders and bloggers or many of them are presenting and is there Any connection between the two in your studied opinion?
2: Well, first of all, yes, I think members of the public are being told that asylum seekers, people who are seeking asylum in the United States because they have a fear of return to their home country are contributing to the fentanyl crisis and that we need to end asylum in this country, immediately expel people back to uh, either Mexico or or to the country that they're fleeing from. And uh, we've seen this repeatedly used as a justification for policies that are not talking about, you know, whether we apprehend someone or whether we stop someone from crossing illegally. It's about whether they can actually apply for a status in this country uh, once they're already in custody. And if they're in custody, obviously, their search for fentanyl, um, so uh, at the base of it there's there is the truth underlying this narrative is that most of the fentanyl coming into the United States now is coming from Mexico uh, the misperception is that it is primarily being trafficked into the United States by illegal immigrants crossing the border illegally and and that is entirely untrue. Um, this is supported by you know the depart you know every, Law enforcement agency in the federal government knows that this is the case. They testified before Congress on this issue this year. Every single Customs and Border Protection, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the FBI, they all agree that the way that fentanyl and almost all other hard drugs enter the United States is through legal ports of entry where legal travelers are bringing fentanyl in, their luggage in cargo. And it's really easy because fentanyl is so potent that it's easy to conceal, whether it's in your package uh, with your luggage or in a package or, um, you know, as part of a a, a large shipment um, in legal cargo, it's very easy to bring it in. And so um, that is why it makes more sense from the standpoint of a cartel or a drug trafficker to try to bring it in through these legal entry points than it is to try to sneak across the border with it on your back. Uh, Because the rate of apprehension, the rate of detection uh, of people crossing the border illegally is actually much higher than people think it is. And we have actually very good surveillance now. We have drones 24-7 in the skies. We have cameras all all along the border. Of course, we don't catch everyone, uh, but we actually d- do have a pretty good idea about the total flow. And the rate of apprehension is greater than 50%. And the rate at which we're intercepting fentanyl coming into this country is below 5%. And it has been for years. And so it doesn't make sense from the standpoint of a drug trafficker to choose trying to sneak into the country with fentanyl compared to try to inc- sneak it in with Uh, through a a legal crossing um, as part of their luggage.
1: Now, uh, Jeff, Dr. Singer, Jeff, uh, fentanyl, there is so much misunderstanding about what fentanyl is, why it's a crisis, and why are we reading about fentanyl all of a sudden so much in the news when there was a time Fentanyl was never spoken anywhere. So help us understand, first of all, the big picture of why fentanyl became in the news at all. Was it filling an unfulfilled need? After all, we had lots of uh, stimulants, lots of, of other illegal drugs before there was fentanyl. So why all of a sudden is fentanyl in the news to the exclusion, it seems, of other of the drugs we're accustomed to reading about, such as heroin, marijuana, to some degree, cocaine, and the like. How did fentanyl get to be in the news so much?
3: Well, I think I'd like to start off by saying, for those of your listeners who haven't heard of, of this term, uh, po- drug policy experts use the term, the iron law of prohibition, Uh Basically, uh, it's, I mean, any economist understands this. But in shorthand, the harder the law enforcement, the harder the drug. So uh, fentanyl has been around since the 1960s. It's a synthetic opioid, which means this doesn't. There's nothing derived from the pop- opium plant. It's made in a lab. It's a very useful, effective uh, opioid that we use in the operating room. We use for anesthetics. We use for people in, in intensive care. Uh, we, we use it uh, usually in an injectable form. Sometimes there's, there's a skin patch called Duragesic that we use, which is, you know, slowly absorbed through the skin over a few days. So it's a very useful painkiller. Um, but it's about about maybe uh, fifty times the potency of heroin, and heroin's about twice the potency of morphine. So it's about a hundred times the potency of of morphine. Very potent. And therefore, a very small amount can get a lot of bang for the buck. That's just recently, the state of Tennessee Department of Health reported it. So that's and it's being seen in Europe. So, again, the iron law is continuously making drug dealers want to find and invent more potent forms of the drug. So if you really want to put the blame for the fentanyl crossing into our country and flooding United States you should really put the blame on prohibition.
2: I just wanted now, to add one, one thing um to that that really highlights this transition during the pandemic. The Customs and Border Protection tracks their seizures of fentanyl and heroin and basically these are comp, you know feeding into the same market. And at the beginning of the pandemic about a third of their seizures were Fentanyl. By the end of the restrictions on trade and travel with Mexico, it was 90 percent were being intercepted with fentanyl. So the the restrictions at the border preventing trade and travel and and free crossings really had a huge effect in shifting that black market away from heroin, which is less potent, to something that could supply the same market with 50 fewer trips and that's what makes sense from an economic perspective for the drug trafficking organizations so we played right into their hands in creating this crisis
1: now uh, a question to either one of you perhaps to jeff first and then david what was their what was the externality that invited fentanyl into the marketplace because there was a period of time that when you heard about or read about the air quotes drug problem, you were all the the nouns were cocaine and heroin. You 20 years ago, my dates could be off. You weren't hearing about fentanyl at all. Was there an external event, either a change in demand or was there governmental action or inaction that caused fentanyl to enter the marketplace? After all, supply exists to satisfy a demand. Well, I think it's fair to say there was a time that there was little or no demand for fentanyl. Then there came a time that now there's a great demand. So what happened? Is it only public taste or fashion, or is there something that caused fentanyl to become so much in demand? Because after all, it's, it's the demand that creates the supply coming into, as we all know.
3: Well, actually, uh, Professor Dan Ciccarone at uh, UC San Francisco Medical School, he's he's a, a addiction specialist. He's been doing a lot of research for the NIH. It's, it's a project called the Heroin in Transition Project, where they're actually interviewing uh, he- intravenous heroin users on the street. and. What he reported was that most, most, uh, IV drug users prefer heroin. That's a completely different feeling you get. To, to quote him, he spoke at a Cato conference actually that I had, where he said, I'm quote, paraphrasing now, that heroin is warm and fuzzy, whereas fentanyl is bold and brash. Now, so most, most uh, people seek heroin, but because, like, like I mentioned before, the iron law of prohibition and then exacerbated by the, the border restrictions, it's gradually become more economical for the, the cartels to supply the market with fentanyl. And uh, now over time, some heroin users have just kind of gotten used to using fentanyl instead but most of them, if you gave them a choice, they prefer heroin. Um, and, and they like to know if there's fentanyl in their heroin because they want to adjust their dose accordingly. Another interesting phenomenon, and this uh, I learned recently from somebody in, uh, here in Arizona who runs a harm reduction organization, that a lot of the fentanyl coming across the border here in Arizona and probably in California is in, in a pill form now. They're making them as pills uh, they, it used to come more in powder or mixed in with things, like with mixed in with heroin, so they could make the heroin uh more potent and thus small uh, smuggle it in smaller sizes. So um, and a lot of the uh drug users find that the pills, it's not it's not very easy for them to make those pills into an injectable form. So they've gone to smoking them. And so now the new uh in fact. This person I spoke to operates a needle exchange program, and she says we're we're actually having to we need fewer needles and more safe smoking equipment because the uh, the users tend to share like glass pipes that are cracked and they give each other cuts and spread infection. So, but on the other hand, from a from a doctor's perspective, it's actually safer to smoke it because you usually you uh, you kind of uh, you calibrate the dose you get to the desired effect so when you take you take a couple of inhalations and when you reach the desired level of effect you stop whereas when you inject it's all in you and if it's more than you needed it's too late so so anyway that's just now, that's an David, interesting in
1: fact um in the hiss in the relationship between the influx of fentanyl through, I'll say the southern border. I suppose that's the more active place. Um, if you were to chart out the influx, was it at one time heavier, and enforcement made it uh, less likely to occur because the likelihood of getting caught was greater, or was there never? Was it always? Was the the, the alleged flow of fentanyl through the southern border? never very much, and the fear that it's flowing through uh, this open spigot was that manufactured. So tell us, if you will, uh, by quantity, a brief history of the relationship between the flow of fentanyl uh, over time. Is sure. there a, a sure. graph? Yeah.
2: About five or six years ago, most of the fentanyl that was coming into the country seemed to be coming in from China uh, through the mail, uh, China really cracked down on, uh, fentanyl production in its country, made it more difficult. So supply shifted directly to Mexico and really ramped up since then. And, and that because it was easier to shift, uh, ship bulk, uh, from Mexico than it was to bring it in through the mail. It seemed like that had an effect on shifting the market. And so we saw every year from 2015 to this last year, increasing rates of uh, fentanyl being intercepted at the border. Again, 90% of it at the legal uh, crossing points, uh, maybe 10% or so uh, coming across the border illegally, uh, but both heading north every year. But in 2020, there was a fundamental shift, and it happened almost immediately April, May, June, July of that year when they basically illegal immigration plummeted at the beginning of the pandemic. The South American, Central American uh, countries had locked down their populations. There was very little movement. There were no jobs in the United States to go to. So illegal immigration was almost eliminated in April and May of 2020. And then the, but the flow of drugs didn't stop. Obviously, people are still demanding drugs. And they had also at the same time restricted legal entry. Uh, only not only what they deemed essential travel was permitted to from Mexico into the United States. And as a consequence, legal crossings plummeted as well. And so what the cartels did is they shifted overwhelmingly to. Using fentanyl and supplying fentanyl because they could supply the same market with 50 fewer trips. And that's a very powerful economic incentive. And it happened at the same time that illegal immigration plummeted. And we saw deaths uh, from 2019, when this policy of restricting immigration started, until 2021, deaths from fentanyl double um, tragically as a result of this shift in, in the market.
1: David, you're an immigration expert, uh, and so it's appropriate for me to ask you this question. You, in your last comment of of a moment ago, you mentioned that there came a time that immigration was restricted only to, and here comes the word, essential immigration. Now, I perked up when I heard that. I had an immediate uh, PTSD flashback to the COVID COVID epidemic. And all of a sudden, the only stores that could be opened were those providing essential services. Essential became this word to hide behind um, in, in imposing irrational governmental restrictions and policies. And as you said it, David, I said to myself, what in the world qualifies as essential immigration? And I must ask you that because I can't answer the question myself. Essential to the immigrant or essential to the country or essential to what exactly? And share with us, if you will, what could possibly be the standards by which Essential immigration is measured,
2: yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it really just came down to non-economic uh, migration was basically prohibited. If you were coming to visit a family member or um, you know to wine and dine in San Diego or um, you know visit a see a, a wedding or, or any of the normal activities that people would have engaged in before this, uh, was banned. And that included, uh, of course, uh, seeking asylum in the in, in the United States was deemed non-essential uh, too, even though those people might die uh, if they uh, couldn't cross the border. So they they eliminated uh, about 75 percent of all the entries into the at the southwest border um, over that summer. And that's when the fentanyl Um, trafficking really picked up uh, because it was much more difficult to bring in the the same quantity of heroin as in the past. But uh, ultimately, the market found a way to supply the same um, users as before. It was just a different substance and it had pretty tragic consequences because no one was prepared for that shift um, in the marketplace. I want to
3: add, that uh, oh, sorry, Now go that uh, the border, now that those restrictions have been lifted, it's not as if the cartel is going to go back to, oh, good, now we can start moving heroin across the border because they've learned that it's much more economical for them to move fentanyl. And that even though many users in the United States might prefer heroin, they've gotten accustomed to using fentanyl. If you gave them a choice, they may choose the heroin over the fentanyl, but fentanyl is is, you know, at this point, they've just kind of adjusted to it. Now,
1: perhaps a naive question, is fentanyl, is is so much of the fentanyl imported, brought across the border illegally, because if you try to manufacture it in the U.S., you're likely to get caught? Or is it because it's cheaper to manufacture outside the U.S.? Why is fentanyl not like moonshine, just... Uh, grown in the hollows or or manufactured in the hollows. Why imported versus manufactured in the U.S.? Uh, Well,
3: first of all, fentanyl, of course, uh, licit fentanyl is manufactured in the U.S. There are uh, pharmaceutical companies that make fentanyl for use in the hospital in the medical setting. And the, the Drug Enforcement Administration sets quotas on Uh, how much of every single category of painkiller of controlled substance, whether it's fentanyl or morphine or oxycodone, they actually are charged with having to decide for the next year, just how much of every single one of these things, the United States with a population of 330 million people will be needing that year. And they tell each company, this is how much you can make that year, which of course is an impossible thing to, to, to be able to figure out. But, uh, it's obviously easier to make cheap, more cheaply and out of the view of law enforcement outside of this country. And you can cobble together the ingredients you need to make it there.
1: So, Jeff, is it the case uh, that sounds like a a counterproductive policy? I'm sure I'm sure it is. Uh, but uh, the somewhat obvious question is if that limitation were not imposed, If the government did not limit how much could be manufactured, creating an artificial shortage uh, by governmental action, do you imagine that the amount of imported fentanyl across the border would diminish because? No. So there's no relationship between. No,
3: No, I was just saying that there is, uh, you know, it is made in the United States, the the licit Fentanyl. Then why imported?
1: Then why imported?
3: The same reason that methamphetamine, which is by the way a legal drug that's made in the United States, it's used to treat ADHD. The the brand name is Desoxin, but methamphetamine is made in meth labs, mostly in Mexico now. Originally, it was there were a lot of local domestic meth labs, but. Uh, It's easy to do it out of the purview, out of the the sight of law enforcement when you go south of the border or not necessarily even south of it, elsewhere, outside of the country, offshore, because otherwise law enforcement is always uh, trying to, you know, surveil you. So it's for that reason that it's been driven out of this country.
1: Now, David, is there any perceived relationship between our drug policy? To Our immigration policy today, if you want to, now perhaps by calling it a policy, is giving it far more credit than it's due. Perhaps I should say, is our immigration absence of policy, does it in any way contribute to the quantity of fentanyl? Is there any relationship between what we do at the border, what our policy is as a nation, uh, and on the quantity of fentanyl that ends up on the streets, or uh, I, I started my show by inquiring into the link, if any, between immigration and fentanyl. The public, well, many of the public and a lot of policymakers would have us believe there's a relationship and is there any relationship whatsoever, or is what is fentanyl merely being used as another argument to support restrictive drug policy? But in reality, it's a it's a it's a false argument.
2: Yes, it's absolutely a false argument. Um, I, we already mentioned examples of how border policy can make the problem worse. You know, restricting it to essential travel. Uh, m- Reduce the number of crossings, which, which made it more, um, uh, likely that fentanyl would be smuggled. But the reality is that 86% of drug traffickers who are convicted are U.S. citizens. And, um, you know, that statistic is, you know, people sort of poo poo that and they say, well, the, the immigrants all get away with it. <laughs> and I, I kind of laugh. It's, you know, they, there aren't magical immigrants out there. If it, if there was some way, <laughs> To get away with it, U.S. citizens would be, you know, you would see U.S. citizens crossing the border illegally uh, with fentanyl rather than trying to smuggle it through a port of entry if it was so easy to to do that. And they're not. So it's just I think it's, you know, it's people who are so committed to making this tie and, and, and wanting to impose restrictive immigration policies. That they're willing to latch on to this argument to make it more serious. It doesn't seem very serious to people if someone comes across the border and takes a job at a farm and picks, you know, fruit, you know, to supply the the U.S. market. That that doesn't seem like a crisis uh, that justifies radical action against immigration. And so people have to come up with this fentanyl tie-in in order to make people upset about people who are trying to help this country um, produce more things and, and bring down inflation and uh, accomplish a lot uh, for this nation. And yet they, they latch on to this this unrelated phenomenon, largely driven by U.S. consumers, trafficked by U.S. citizens. And uh, yeah, so it's fear mongering. And it's uh, based on really an incomplete picture or an absence of knowledge about the facts of the situation.
1: So, David, from what... I'm sorry, Jeff, you wanted to say something. Well, I
3: just want to add that what's driving the fentanyl is the market. There's a demand for drugs, and we have drug prohibition, so uh, the demand is going to be met through the black market rather than through the legal market, period. Now, the only way I would say... Uh, and I, I don't think you would disagree with me, David, the way that immigration ties in is that restrictive immigration sort of activates the iron law of prohibition. So were it not for such restrictive immigration, perhaps fentanyl would not have emerged as a practical substitute for heroin. Uh, and and so the tighter we make the immigration, the more we're giving an incentive for for the drug makers and dealers to try to come up with something even that they could even make in smaller quantities and 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 get much more economic value for it for smuggling so we're at, so in that respect our current restrictive immigration policy is stimulating the development of drugs like fentanyl or even stronger drugs
1: oh that's such an interesting uh, link that you pointed out uh jeff yeah, we
2: had actual open borders We would not have a fentanyl crisis. It it wouldn't exist because fentanyl only exists. There was no natural demand for it initially. And it only exists because as a method to avoid um, being intercepted at the border, at the U.S. border.
1: David, it seems to me that uh, those who oppose I'll say open borders, but nobody really opposes open borders that broadly. But we mean perhaps a rational immigration policy. We'll stop there for the minute. That those who oppose a more liberal immigration policy reach into their toolbox and they raise as many arguments as they can. None accurate. For example, we all have heard they take our jobs. How absurd is that? Uh, that's one argument. Another argument is uh, they create more crime. We know that's not true. They create more crime because of cultural reasons. Another argument is they dilute American culture. Ugh! I hate that argument more than others. So there's this litany of all fake arguments and fentanyl, is fentanyl just another one in a series of bad arguments used to justify a policy that cannot otherwise be justified on the merits? Or is there something, is there any truth at all to the fentanyl, or is it proper to lump it up with all the other? phony arguments against immigration.
2: Oh, it's it's even more phony than the others because the restrictive immigration policy, as we mentioned, makes the problem worse. They're, they're actually, you know, making the situation that they claim they want to solve even worse by restricting immigration. So it's it's even more absurd and and inaccurate than those other ones that you listed. I mean at least you know uh restricting immigration um you know like I don't even know it, what the good comparison would be but this idea that fentanyl is um a reason to restrict immigration makes no sense it's not logical and at the end of the day, if you want to clean the slate of border patrol so they can surveil every hour of every minute, uh, let people come into the country legally. And but they don't want they don't want that policy. They don't want people to check in and cross the border legally and um come in and contribute to this country.
1: The hardest question I have, I'm speaking personally now about the those who oppose immigration a more liberal immigration policy is is there is there one identifiable group some unifying factor that describes why so many people are appear to be opposed to a humane rational liberal immigration policy to be sure unions have an interest a, appear to be protecting American jobs. It's fake, but they have it. So, But that's a clear, defined economic interest. But the opposition, and I'm really asking you kind of a deep question, David, the opposition is broader than just union members. Yeah. And is it simply a question of uh, bootleggers and Baptists, a whole bunch of disparate groups find this unifying issue Um of open borders, or is there, can you identify the source of all of the energy against immigration, or is there simply a whole bunch of separate sources?
2: Well, I think there are a lot of separate sources, but I do think the unifying energy is in the chaotic images that uh, cable news and social media spread. Um, It looks like, you know, these people are criminals. They're sneaking across the border. They're evading uh, Border Patrol and law enforcement. That doesn't seem like a good thing. And it's not a good thing. But the reaction should be we should be having a policy where people get vetted before they come. They fly on a visa. They get on a plane. They enter like anyone else. They go to a job legally, Uh, where they're not paid under the table and they can contribute uh, like anyone else to this country, not to close the border and crack down even harder, which only creates even more chaos and and more smuggling and more um, uh, problems with, uh, with law enforcement and government spending. And I mean, there are so many stories. I see stories every single day where I think that's a real story. That's like government is spending how much money on people who cross the border illegally, but it's only because they had to cross the border illegally that we're spending this money. And so people get outraged when they see stories like we're spending $10 billion to house illegal immigrants who just crossed the border. And it's only because they crossed the border illegally that we're spending this money. And so it's really a self-reinforcing phenomenon. We start with the restrictive policy. It has chaotic elements. We waste a lot of money. People get mad about it. And then they want more restrictive policy rather than curing the problem by focusing on the underlying immigration issue.
1: The way I like to explain it. If I'm having a chat with somebody who says the platitude, "I oppose illegal immigration," well, that's a that's a tough one. Okay, I oppose illegal immigration. My retort is, "Do you oppose the illegal part or the immigrant part?" Um, And if you oppose the illegal part, in other words, once you change the law, then you're there. with a a basket of donuts as they cross the border because you're now welcoming them because they just became legal? Or is it the immigrant part that you oppose and you use in defense of your position the fact that it's illegal? Uh, And and you have just uh, expanded upon, I think, that issue. People take refuge in the fact they're breaking the law. Well, yeah. they're breaking the law because the law that tries to alter natural human behavior that doesn't hurt anybody, those laws will always be broken because they're contrary to the nature of humans. Uh, so I think uh, that seems to be uh, your answer, that there, there isn't one cabal, not one unifying anti-immigrant party. That simply is looking for a whole lot of arguments to justify that position. Everybody has a different reason, but perhaps because it's so easy, hey, it's illegal, and that's why I oppose it that's why they they select that now Jeff is there um for, you've studied the fentanyl crisis and more broadly the opioid crisis, and we've talked about it on my show many times. Is there, do you say to yourself or to your readers or to those in the audience when you speak, do you point to immigration policy? Does it come up as one of the elements of your discussion of the fentanyl crisis as if immigration policy is fixed, then what I'm here to speak to you about, speaking about yourself, um, declines in significance?
3: Uh, No, actually, I don't. To me, immigration is sort of besides the point. Although, like I said a little bit ago, uh, restrictive immigration may help fuel the development of more uh, potent forms of drugs to be smuggled. But it really it's the, the, the drug, the drug overdose problem. That's what I consider it. By the way, it's a drug overdose problem, not a drug problem. It's also maybe an HIV and hepatitis problem. So at, at, at bottom, it's really a prohibition problem because all these things, it's prohibition that makes all of this dangerous. You know, when we, when we had alcohol prohibition, we had people dying from, uh, drinking denatured alcohol and tainted alcohol. Uh, and we had the, you know, the development of gang big gangsters and gang wars. And, and it's the same thing all over again. Alcohol use became, and, and alcohol still is a, is a di- very dangerous drug. It's actually, pharmacologically speaking, it's much more dangerous than than opioids. Opioids don't cause cirrhosis or heart damage or brain damage or cancer, but but alcohol does. And um, yet when it was made legal, it's made so much more safe because you could go into a a, a store, you could see on the bottle what the ingredients are, uh this recourse if if the manufacturer was lying and it was a higher strength of alcohol or it had impurities in it so um this whole the whole overdose crisis is a direct result of drug prohibition, and all these other uh issues are basically exercises in deflection they're trying to deflect the blame uh like like David. Pointed out, like like we said in in the Washington Post article a few weeks ago, you know, first they 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 were deflecting. First they were blaming the doctors and the pharmaceutical companies for causing the overdose crisis. Then when it became fentanyl coming across the border, they're blaming immigrants, uh, illegal immigrants, and a porous border. But that's not going to fix it either. You could build an entire wall around this country. Just look for something much more potent than fentanyl to emerge very quickly. Uh, It's all about prohibition. What I have
1: learned from you, Jeff, that I'd like the audience to learn from you, as I have, that part of the health problem, the death, the fentanyl related deaths in this country is in part because with legal fentanyl, manufactured under the controls that our country imposes upon the manufacture and the labeling, very important component, and the labeling of fentanyl as to what it is and the potency. When you have legal fentanyl, the user will be able to make a more informed decision, including quantity. That's not to say we want to make it per se. E- well, the issue is not to make it more convenient, to be uh, addicted or to abuse the product, but simply, as you have said, the phrase I learned from you quite a while ago, harm reduction, that by opening up the marketplace to creating the demand we talked about earlier for fentanyl, which cannot be satisfied with the drug manufactured under the proper controls, you bring in unlabeled, poorly manufactured fentanyl, which means the user is uninformed and cannot uh, control the quantity as much. So help us understand, uh, explain for a bit, as you have for me so many times, the relationship when the user, when the street is forced to use imported it could be domestic, but as you have pointed out, it's not imported black market fentanyl manufactured without controls. Uh, how that plays out in the abuse and death of fentanyl users?
3: Well, it's it's because it's on a black market that it's that's what makes it dangerous. So you could see what's happened in a number of states now where they've legalized uh, marijuana recreationally and there are actually stores you can go into. So just like Nowadays, in a liquor store, uh, if you want to talk to the proprietor and ask them about, you know, how much alcohol is in this in this particular product, and you know, you could ask all sorts of questions. Well, if if you if if you go into a a marijuana store, you could go up to somebody behind the counter and say, and and I've seen this where you can say, look, I'm a lightweight. Uh, I haven't really used marijuana in 40 years. So uh, consider me a beginner, which what do you recommend I, I buy here? And they'll say, okay, well, let me take you over to this case over here. This is very mild lower THC concentration and they actually will give you advice on, on, on how to use it. That's what happens when things are legal. And then people could openly share information with one another. They could make arrangements like we all do with, for example, if you if you're going to be going to a party and you're planning to drink heavily. So, you know, you 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 get a designated driver, or you or or you you call an Uber to get home rather than driving. These are all forms of harm reduction. Basically, harm reduction is non-judgmental. The, the idea behind it is uh, that, regardless of whether or not I approve of your choices, uh, I want to see your choices do less harm to you. So, as a doctor, we do this. I, I say to a lot of my colleagues, you know, you don't, you may not realize this, but. But in, in an affluent developed country like the United States, the overwhelming majority of things that we do is practice harm reduction. So if you have a patient who you know, has a high blood pressure, uh, mild diabetes, high cholesterol, you know, they're they're kind of heading down the highway towards a major heart attack or something like that. And you tell them, you know, I could I can get you if I can get you on a diet and uh, an exercise program. Uh, get your weight down, we get your blood pressure under control, get your cholesterol down. You won't even need anything for your diabetes. And the, the patient, the person says, yeah, I know, but I can't. I love to eat. I hate to exercise. I know I'll stay on any diet you give me for a couple of weeks, and then I'll start to to revert back to my habits. So what do you do? So you prescribe uh, a blood pressure pill and a drug to keep their blood sugar under better control, like metformin, and uh, a statin drug to lower their cholesterol, well, what you're doing is you're practicing harm reduction. You're saying I'm not necessarily approving of your lifestyle choices, but I can I can't c- control your lifestyle choices and I also have no right to. So let me let me do what I can to make your to m- make it less likely that you're going to harm yourself by by continuing to live your life this way. That's what harm reduction is. So in the people in this country, particularly you see on cable news who are decrying the overdose crisis and so they say 100,000 people died of overdoses this year. The biggest ever, another record. And it's going to be a bigger one next year. It's, it's continuing to grow. It, well, if you don't want people to die, then you should allow groups to give out things like clean syringes and needles. I mean, obviously, you should, you should legalize drugs. But if you're not going to do that, at least allow people to give out clean needles and syringes. To allow doctors to prescribe methadone directly to patients instead of having to go to these prison-like clinics, and there are a whole host of harm reduction measures that are prohibited by laws in this country because the lawmakers say, "I don't want to uh, be seen as enabling or endorsing your choice." But really, that's that's not what you should be concerned about. You should be concerned about that these people are dying, and and so that's where the efforts should be should be uh, uh, placed.
1: Now, David, we have only a few minutes left until it's time for me to ask the most provocative question of the century, which would take you about a semester to answer. That's my usual trap that I do with guests. I'll try not to do that. But David, uh, the immigration policy in this country has, looking at the past, unsolvable. Congress is unable to act Um, deferring to the president using alleged executive powers. Now, at Cato, you you publish so much valuable information about what's wrong with immigration policy. Now, what is the low-hanging fruit, the somewhat attainable changes that you can see so that our listeners, if they or when they understand the contribution to the fentanyl problem and to a lot of the country's ills is a is it's almost a hyphenated word failed immigration policy. What are the some of the easy solutions that are attainable that you would recommend that we focus on?
2: Huh. Uh, if I if I could tell you what is attainable, then I would be uh, be a very very then you would be a guest on my show, but. But let me. T- I mean, look. There's there's problems all along the immigration spectrum. Everything from uh the, the the physician shortage in the United States is severe. Everyone knows it. Everyone agrees on it. This should be something that Congress should be able to take care of. It ties into the 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 health care uh, crisis, mental health crisis in the United States. And we do nothing about it year after year after year. We have the same number of green cards for employer-sponsored immigrants that we had in 1990 over 30 years ago. We're using the same cap on employer-sponsored immigrants, which includes everything from geniuses to physicians uh, all along the spectrum. And there's no way to, to get into this country and contribute in a meaningful way. The United States has half as many physicians per capita as most developed countries. And it's a consequence of our outdated immigration laws, also our licensure laws at the state level. Uh, Jeff can speak more to that. So I think that the healthcare uh, workforce issues on immigration should be something that every American cares about. It should be easy for Congress to address. If you look at it, you know it's not just physicians, it's also nurses that we have a need for. We have no work visa that enables nurses to enter uh, right away. They're not eligible for the H-1B visa. They're only eligible if they get a green card right away, which is a great disincentive for employers to sponsor people because that process is so costly and the, the nurse can leave immediately after they've been hired. Some hospitals, they still do it. They'll go through that process, even though they know the nurse could leave them right away. But it's a big disincentive to getting people into the country when when you have that kind of process. So healthcare, care uh, physicians all the way down to home health aides, a desperate need. We're an aging population. We need to get that done at the border. Unfortunately, we we're not anywhere close to a consensus about how to handle that. But we need to work out a deal, at least with Mexico, on some guest workers who can come in. And work in some of these open positions in the United States without having to cross the border illegally. That the the situation is untenable. We can't keep filling jobs in this country by letting people cross the Rio Grande and have a thousand die every year.
1: And what you really, what you have just proposed as a, of course a starting point. What I what I found in your solution, doctors, nurses, guest workers, is there are no victims of that policy. There's no group who will feel threatened by that type of a proposal. So to hope for widespread immigration reform, it's it's just, it's unattainable. But taking the shots one at a time and this going for, as I said, the low-hanging fruit. It's so easy to obtain. And once you do, we get used to incrementally a more enlightened immigration policy. And I'll close by pointing out to our listeners that I use the phrase, we all use the phrase, immigration reform. Rhetorical question. Did you ever notice that whenever we use the word reform in public policy what we are reforming is another policy it's it's a bad policy that that inc- that creates the reform business so how about not messing up to begin with, and then there's less to reform. That's for another show and another day. Thank you so much, uh, David Beer and Jeff, Dr. Jeff Singer, for sharing with us their thoughts on fentanyl and its relationship, if any, to the open borders, if they are in fact open, which they probably are not. They're just chaotic. And most uh, of equal importance, thanks so much, to your wonderful colleagues at the Cato Institute for all of the wonderful work they do. Every time I, I read a blog or open up a publication from Cato, I can't help but feel smarter and more informed. So thank you so much, my friends, and thank you to Cato, and thank you to my listeners for giving us an hour of your valuable time. I hope you have found it worthwhile. Thanks so much.